Hey, and welcome to the Humanity Church Podcast. So excited that you're here. We hope that you enjoy this week's talk and it really connects to your life in a meaningful way. If you're live in the Pomona area, we would love to have you at one of our gatherings at 10 a.m. or at one of our humanity groups that meet all throughout the week all over the city. If you want more information about our community, you can go to www.humanitychurch.com or download our app on your phone on Apple or Android. If you like what you're hearing here and want to continue to support the ongoing work at Humanity, you can text the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977 and give back financially in just about 10 seconds. Hey, and here's this week's talk that was given live at our Sunday gathering at Humanity Church. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to come together to, to celebrate and to sing and to, to be reminded of who you are and to be reminded of who we are, God, in that. I ask today that you would speak to us and move in us and through us that we might, uh, at the end of our time together here today, say that we connected to you and we connected to our purpose in a new way. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, like the bumper just said, we're in a series called The Regrets of the Dead. And we're taking a look at the top five regrets that those who were in the last 12 weeks of their life here on earth gave. uh, And saying, hey, of everything that I regretted of my life, here are the top five. And there was a sociologist who compiled all of these and came up with the top five. And so we've been going through each one of these systematically. We're looking at them so that we might be able to reverse engineer our life. In other words, that we might be able to look at what the outcome is that we long for. The, the regrets are essentially a longing that, that everyone has, that every single human being has within them. And so if we know the regrets, we might be able to start here today, looking backwards and saying, what do I need to do today to transform my life, to end up in a space where I don't regret that, where I can look back at my life and say, yeah, I lived authentically. I, I, I gave myself to work, but not in a way that it killed me. I shared my heart. I, I gave myself to community and I allowed myself to be defined by joy. What is it gonna take here and now for us to live a life that might be defined by something other than the regrets that so many end up with at the end of their days? See, ancient wisdom in the book of Proverbs tells us that we are to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And that's what we're actually up to, is taking a look at the reality that our days are numbered, that time is not, a limited, is not an unlimited commodity, contrary to what you might think, that there is an expiration date to every single one of us. And if that's the case, then we ought to invest every single moment, every single second with intentionality and passion and purpose. And it's actually sad that the the dominant message of Christianity seems to be that like this experience is a bad thing. And so we either need to just endure it or we need to count down the days until we get out of it. Let's, Let's focus on enduring and getting out of here. Ironically, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, he, he talked about heaven, and he talked about an afterlife, certainly, but the majority of his teaching was actually about how we are to live our lives here and now. He talked a lot about relationships. He talked a lot about forgiveness. He talked a lot about what it looks like to love one another. And, and so with that, our lives might dramatically be shifted here and now, not someday or somewhere else, but that here and now. And so Jesus actually had a lot to say about these regrets and how we might actually live our lives in a way that these regrets don't define us at the end of our days. 
So we're gonna reverse engineer our, the second regrets. Last week we talked about the first one that almost every single person had was that they, they wished they had, they had lived an authentic life. And we looked at what it looks like to live an authentic life, that we would know our origins and we would know what it looks like to be genuine, that courage isn't, that authenticity isn't the courage to live your truth. Courage, our authenticity is the courage to discover what is true and to submit yourself to it, that you might step into the life that you were designed to live. This, week, this week's regret is, is actually quite interesting because the sociologist who did this study found that every single man that she spoke with had this regret. She actually said there wasn't a single man in her study that did not have this regret at the end of their days. Now, because of the generational gap, elderly women did not have this regret as much and younger women, it started showing up in their lives with that but it is the regret that I wish I wouldn't have worked myself to death. I wish I wouldn't have given so much of my time and my energy to work. How many of you experience the Sunday afternoon dread? I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but yeah, some of you are instantly like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. You have a great weekend, you know, Friday night was awesome, it was popping. Saturday, you're relaxing, you're having a great day off, things are getting peaceful, you're getting your house together, getting laundry done, whatever you do, you go hang out with some friends. Sunday, you come to humanity, you're feeling refreshed, life is good, and then you get back home Sunday afternoon after having lunch, and then you have to start prepping for the week ahead of you. You know what I'm talking about? And I call that the Sunday uh, afternoon dread. You start thinking about everything that's coming up. You start looking at your calendar and realizing, oh, I have that on Tuesday night and I have this Wednesday and I have this big project that's coming up. And then on top of that, many of you get to emotionally prepare yourself for the work environment that you're going to be in with that. And there is this love-hate relationship that we have with this thing called work. And actually, Many theologians would actually say that that work is, in fact, a curse from the fall. In fact, the the fall of humanity in the beginning of the scriptures, one of the things that God says to Adam is, he basically says, look, because of your decision to disobey me, you now have to work the ground. You now have to toil to get what you need here and now. And so it seems like a curse, but the fact of the matter is that Adam actually had a job before this whole fall situation happened. He actually had a job. His job was to take care and tend to the garden. So this was what Adam's purpose was. God gave him everything and he says, you have dominion over everything. So now you get to have this garden to take care of it and to tend to it. See, I don't think that God in this moment was like, how can I torment humanity? I know, a nine to five, ha ha ha, right? I don't think that was his intention or his purpose here in this moment because there was purpose that Adam already had in his role. He was already given the role of the, of the garden keeper and that was he was giving himself to. It was part of humanity's creative expression that Adam got to name the animals and he got to make sure that everything was running smoothly. He was the one who oversaw the operations of the garden and it was beautiful. In fact, it was paradise in the middle of all of this. So here's the question, what happened? If it's not a role thing, then what actually shifted in the middle of this? It's interesting because Proverbs says this to us about work. In Proverbs chapter six, starting in verse six, it says, go to the ant, you sluggard. I love that, right? He basically, like, for those of you who are sluggards in the room, we know it's not a word we use very much, but he said, take a look at the ants. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, 
No overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at the harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. I often talk to people when they lose their job or they're having trouble finding a job. One of the things I always tell people is I say, look, you have to get out of the house. You have to, you, even if it's just from nine to five, you go to the library, you go to Starbucks, you have to get out of the house. You have to go do something. Go volunteer, go serve somewhere because there's this tendency to find ourselves moving into this category of sluggard, right? And then all of a sudden, We've watched every Netflix season and we've gone through all of the potato chips and we've gained enough weight in the middle of that. And then we're like, where is all my motivation gone in the middle of all of this? And this is one of the reasons why the writer of the Proverbs actually tells us, look, look to the ant. He has no one telling him what to do. And yet he naturally has this drive to get things done. And if you do not find yourself working, you will find yourself in destruction. See, we are actually called in the scriptures to give some of our time to work. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have a list of like spiritual things in my mind, work does not often end up on the list of spiritual things, right? I think of prayer, I think of reading the scriptures, I think of coming to community group, fasting, serving, giving, all of those things. And yet still in the scriptures, work comes up as a spiritual act, It comes up as an act of spirituality in us and within us. See, what happened in the garden with Adam and humanity is that work started to feel like labor. And that was the curse. That was the downfall in all of it. It, He started to have an adversarial relationship to the work that had continued. And I noticed there are two ways that this regret, this way that we relate to work creeps into our life and starts to destroy us and actually at the end of our days, will become a regret. But I I think it's important to address the root issue of why this actually becomes a regret at the end of our days. See, in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, it says this about us. It says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things of God, not earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. See, when your life starts following Jesus, when you give yourself to following him and his ways and engaging in a relationship with him, you will suddenly find your life hidden in him. Colin, my youngest son, likes to do this new thing that that when I come into his room to tuck him in at night, he hides himself under the covers and pretends that he can't be seen. Now, he clearly can be seen, but I come in and I'm like, oh no, where's Colin? We have to go find Colin. Of course, he's giggling under the covers, right? We have to find Colin because he has hidden himself in the blanket. Now, I cannot see Colin. I cannot visually see him there. There's just a lump in the, in the sheets. He's laughing. There's movement under there. I know he's under there, but he has hidden himself. I can see nothing but the blanket but I know that Colin is in there somewhere. See, when you're connected to Christ, what Christ does is he wraps you up like a blanket. And he says, your life is now hidden in me. And it's not like you go away. It's not like you use, lose your uniqueness or the things that are special about you. And actually, actually, I would argue that they become more enhanced. But I would say that you actually become hidden in him so that your primary identifier in life becomes Christ. 
That the thing that you become known for, the thing that you're about, the thing that determines who your identity, what your identity is, becomes Christ. And your identity is who you are, period. So, so when, when, when the scriptures are saying, when you come to Christ, you are hidden in him, it actually says, this is your identity from now on. You are hidden in Christ. Now look, there are a lot of things that we can allow to become part of our identity, But when people interact with Jesus and become followers of him, what the scriptures tell us is that our primary identifier should always be child of God. That that is always the primary identifier that God invites us into, that Jesus creates for us, that he wraps us in. See, because one of the things that I love about Jesus is that he invites us into a much higher conversation about identity than the culture's having around us. He actually invites us into, a, into actually a more profound conversation around what it means to be human than what would normally be offered to us all around us. And he says, look, if you hide yourself in me, there is nothing to prove because you are now hidden in God. I'm not too sure how much higher than you can get on the identity rung, right? When, when I think about like all the identifiers, God himself is probably the highest of that list. And that is what God says is that when you connect to me, this becomes your primary identifier in life and there is no need to compete or prove anything. You are freed up to live the life that you were made for. However, when our life is identified by anything less than divine, things start to fall apart. The wheels start to come off the cart and we find ourselves in an identity crisis when we attach our identity to anything other than child of God. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing that I love about human beings is that we have all kinds of different secondary characteristics that can define who we are or are differentiators. They're exactly that. They're characteristics of who we are all around us. Things like age and gender and socioeconomic and race and sexuality and background and education. There's all kind of secondary differentiators, characteristics. And it's not that those don't exist or that we shouldn't celebrate them or look at them or or see them as unique defining characteristics of who we are. It's that, that they work better as characteristics than an identity. The second they become an identity, things start to actually fall apart. Because what you base your identity on will always determine your worth and value in life. Whatever you decide, this is my identifying characteristic or characteristic, that will immediately determine your value and your worth in life around us. See, because from that space, you will then look to that thing to inform you of what you're worth. You'll look to that characteristic to inform you of what you're worth. And let me just tell you, it always sets up a zero-sum game. In other words, it always sets up a game where I have to lose or I have to win above everyone else in order to feel valuable and worthy. It just naturally sets up that game in life. So in order to prove my value and my worth, if my identity is attached to any of these secondary characteristics, I need to prove that my identity is more or less than you over there, is that it's equal to or behind or greater than your identity over there. Which is why we have all kinds of conversations now around who's better, men or women? <laughs> Who's better, black or white? Who's better, gay or straight? Who's better, poor or rich? It becomes an endless striving and fighting to figure out who has the greater identity. 
And it's a battle that will just keep going and going and going until there is a victor. The problem is, is that it will leave a lot of people bloody, worthless, and devalued in the fight for all of those things. And what I've noticed is that one of the things that we look for, look to, to identify with, to determine our value and our work at times is our work. That who I am is intimately connected to what I can produce and what I can do in life. And in that we become very utilitarian in how we relate to ourselves and other people because it starts to produce a way of thinking that becomes incredibly toxic when our identity is connected to what we can produce and what we can do in life because we find ourselves thinking, oh, well, if I do good work, then I'm a valuable person. And if I do better work than them over there, then I'm a better person. And in fact, if I can work myself up to the place where I do the best work, then I'm actually the best human. I'm the best wife. I'm the best husband. I'm the best child. I'm the best coworker, whatever it may be. So if I, it would make sense that we would then start putting more time and energy and effort and resources into our work. Because if we do that, then we become more and better in the middle of all this. Work becomes an identity maker rather than an expression of my purpose. Rather than an expression of who I am in the middle of this. This is why when people retire, there is often a massive identity crisis that follows. Because so much of their identity has been based on what they do. And then they find themselves no longer doing that. And they no longer know who they are because they're no longer able to do the thing. It's why we oftentimes look to coworkers as competitors rather than mentors or partners in the middle of that. If they do better than me, then it means that I'm less than in the middle of this conversation. See, it shouldn't be a surprise that while our nation is in the middle of an identity crisis, we also have a worker shortage because people don't know who they are when they don't know what they're doing in the middle of this. See, because when what you do becomes your primary identifier, it will eventually work you to death. It just will. Because you will always have to give more and do more and be more in the middle of all of this. But there's another identity conversation that comes with this as well that's probably more familiar to us specifically as Americans. But in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, it says... This, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and, harm, and harmful desires that, that, uh, that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, some are enticed to make their life all about their work, that what they do defines who they are in the middle of this. Others, it actually becomes a pathway to another identity, and that is prosperity, specifically financial prosperity. And there's this idea that if I get more money, then somehow I will be more happy or that my life will somehow fix itself because now I don't have to deal with all of these problems over here. Now, now to, be made, to just make this super clear because this verse gets twisted out of context so much, there is actually nothing wrong with being wealthy. 
In the scriptures, it actually says that it is, it is healthy to, to make money and to be wealth. There's nothing wrong with that in the middle of this. See, many misinterpret this verse to say that money is the root of all evil, but what they're actually saying is that the love of money is the root of all evil. I, when I worked in Los Angeles for many, many years in the industry, I would watch all these, these young people come in from all over the United States. They'd come in from their little town in Ohio and they were the lead in Oklahoma and now they're gonna be the biggest thing in Hollywood and, and they're ready to go. And it's interesting because I watch as some of these wet behind the ears, young men, young women coming into Hollywood, some made it, some didn't. And it was, it was always fascinating to watch those who made it and those who started beefing up their income and they found themselves suddenly, now I have the money that I had always wanted and now I have the wealth and now I have the prestige, prestige that I was always wanting. And they found themselves in that moving further and further into despair rather than into hope and to prosperity. <laughs> that they thought that if they got enough money and if they got enough fame and if they got enough prestige that they would find themselves there and they actually never did. And then I actually found people who never made it and who got a job at Starbucks and gave themselves to meaningful endeavors and they never got the money, but they actually found the fulfillment and the joy that they were looking for. Vice versa, I know people who have more money than they know what to do with and they are the most miserable people on the earth and I know people who have more money than they know what to do with and they are the most fulfilled and happy people on the planet because it's not about the money ever. It's about what we make the money mean. That's really what happens. See, because money is a great tool to serve the world around you, it will kill you if it becomes something that you live for. It will kill you if it becomes a marker to identify how successful you are as a human being in the middle of all this. See, because here's the, here's the reality. I don't care how awesome your job is, you're there for the money. I don't care. I don't care how awesome it is because if your employer tomorrow was just like, yeah, not paying you anymore, chances are you're probably like, great, I'm out, right? <laughs> I don't care how meaningful, I don't care how much I love my job, it's, I'm fulfilled, whatever it may be. The fact of the matter is that you're there for the money, which is why when people have a crisis of meaning in life, they oftentimes want to go quitting their job. It's amazing how many people I talk with who are having a crisis of identity, they're having a crisis of faith, they're having a life crisis, and it's like clockwork. Eventually they'll come back and say, you know what I think I need to do? I think I need to change my career. If I, if I just quit my job, then somehow I'll find myself self like in a, in a better place with life within the middle of all this. And I always tell people, don't do that, because now you're just gonna be both miserable and broke. And that's a really bad combination to be with in the middle of this. So you don't have to like it. That's why they call it work, honey, right? <laughs> that, that's what it is in the middle of this. See, if you're just thinking about your job in terms of money, you are just one step above a prostitute because you are simply selling yourself short, selling your soul for money. And there's all kinds of circumstances that go into it. I don't say that lightly, but... This is where we find ourselves at. See, people who only want to get rich, the scriptures say, are plunged into ruin and destruction and are pierced with many griefs because they assume that money could provide something for them that only God could. They assume that money was gonna eventually make up for something that was missing in their soul and it never actually does. So it makes sense that so many people on their deathbed 
would look back and say, huh, I gave so much time to that job and it never actually gave me what I was looking for. I gave so much time to make all that money and the money never actually gave me what I thought it would do. What they're actually saying is, I actually never got the identity that I was looking for in the job or in the money that I was desperately striving for. Have you ever known someone who has like a super insignificant job and they just love it? It's amazing. You know what I love? One of the, we, we go to Disneyland a lot as a family. It's like, well, it's like our, our, we have one expenditure for fun and it's Disneyland, that's it. And I know it's a big expenditure, but it is, right? So, but you know what I love at Disneyland is watching the trash collectors who love their job. I mean, they're walking around with their, like, their broom and their dustbin, and they're just happy as can be. And I'm like, that's awesome, right? <laughs> because I know people who are like CEO levels, and they give themselves to meaningful things, and they're miserable. They're absolutely miserable in the work that they give them to. And it's actually refreshing and a bit shocking to find people who are in like low-level positions with really insignificant jobs who are like, yeah, I really, really love what I'm doing. I, someone, I, I had a barista at Starbucks the other day who was just, you could tell, they loved their life so much. And I'm like, you make coffee, and that's awesome. No kicking that. Everyone needs it. We all got a habit, so you're our dealer. That's awesome. But they were like, my life is amazing. And I'm like, go, you go with your Starbucks, right, <laughs> over there. And it's usually because they realize that their sense of meaning was never going to be found in the job that their sense of worth was never gonna be found in their work and what they did. Likewise, there's people who have significant roles and they hate it and they're working to find their purpose. They're assuming that I can find, I can work my way into a purpose that will eventually find me fulfilled. See, because when you're in that space, even promotions and raises will feel like a curse. Because then you'll find yourself thinking, oh great, more responsibility. Oh great, something else to live up to. Oh great, something else that I now have to compete with with a whole other level of human beings in here. And then you'll find yourself eventually saying, you know, this isn't my calling. That this isn't really what God wants me to do. And, and then they'll quit their job and then they'll find the next job. And surprise, that's not their calling either. <laughs> And it's an endless search. See, you can change position after position after position and still feel empty. You're just remodeling the house while it's on fire. See, people will live their life blaming their boss and blaming their coworkers and their career for their unhappiness when it was never actually them to begin with. So how do we reverse engineer this? Let's all quit tomorrow. Just joking. Don't do that. We're not a cult, all right? So Colossians 3, we read a little bit about Colossians earlier, but in that same passage that talks about our identity, that says, hide yourself in Christ, that same chapter later on says this to us in verse 23. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. This is the Lord Christ. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. See, what if your work wasn't meant to define you? But what if your work was actually meant to shape you? See, because isn't it at work that it's one of the main places where our character gets shaped, isn't it? 
I don't know about you, but I like, look, I'm the boss, and even my character is shaped daily in every single thing that I do here in this space. See, because it is in your work that your perseverance is tested, your character and your integrity is tested, your passion is tested, your creativity is tested, your drive is tested, your willingness to ask for help is tested, your willingness to fail and go again is tested, your relationship to authority is tested, and it is all shaped in this context text called work. And if we submit ourselves to it, if we're willing to say, hey, I'm all in, I'm going to give myself to this process, what the scriptures say is that we actually might become more and more like God in the process if we relate to our work as if we were working for him. As if everything was a reflection of what God was doing in us and it was just an expression outward in every context, including our work that we find ourselves in. Could you imagine if some of the things that you said about your boss out loud and in your head you said to God? Could you imagine if some of the things that you said in your head about your coworkers out loud and in your head you were saying about God? See, Here's the painful truth. The scriptures actually says you are because your work is working as unto the Lord. And so the way that you relate to your boss is a direct reflection of how you relate to God himself. The way that you relate to your coworkers is a direct reflection of how you relate to God himself. The way you relate to the tasks that are in front of you is the way that you relate to God himself because we do not work unto man. We work as unto God himself. See, what I love about all all these regrets is they, they, all they do is they reveal the desires of our hearts that have been distorted. And they reveal to us what's needed in the middle of this. See, because we were made for authenticity. And so when there's a regret about authenticity, what it lets us know is that there's a need to share of ourselves fully in the middle of all this. We were made to give ourselves emotionally to one another. We were made for community. We were made to live in joy. And so it reveals all these desires that are innately a part of what it means to be human. And here's one of the things that I know that is true about every single one of us in this room is that you were made to leave a mark on this world. You were made to leave a mark on your family, on your coworkers, on your friends, on the people that live near you. Every single person that you come in contact with, you were made to leave a distinct mark on. So it would make sense that within us, there would be this drive to work, to give ourselves, to put our hands to the plow and say, how am I gonna make my mark? See, when it becomes a means to an identity, either success or wealth, it will leave you exhausted, it will leave you frustrated, it will leave you let down. But when work becomes a tool to shape your character so that you can hone in that mark that you were made to make on the world, it will become an asset for you because it will continually sharpen the mark that you were made to make because God will never care more about what you do than who you are. And that is the core of this regret. Believing that God actually cares more about my behavior and what I do than he does about who I am at my center. Because here's the thing, when you allow God to transform your center it will actually transform everything else around you. Because here's the thing that is so beautiful, is that your value 
and your worth was actually established before the foundations of the earth were ever made. And there is nothing that you can work or do to increase that. There's no job that you can give yourself that will move you to the next level or give you higher spiritual status or connection with God. See, the question is not, are you infinitely cherished and loved and valued and called by God? The real question is, are you living a life worthy of that calling? See, you're not living to prove how valuable you are. You're living out of the realization that you are valuable, that you are worthy because God has called you valuable and worthy. See, the real question is, will you live a life worthy of that calling? See, if that is the conversation we are in, not a conversation about value or identity or worth, then our work might be able to just simply reflect his greatness within us. That when we give ourselves to our nine to five, even if it seems silly and if it seems worthless, it becomes an expression of the greatness of God himself within us. In other words, I do not have to work to prove something about me. My work is an expression of the divine that is being worked out and worked through me. And that is the beautiful thing that we get to give to the world around us, which is one of the reasons why as followers of Jesus, we should actually be the most valuable employees on the planet. I mean, I mean there, there should be coworkers who are calling up churches saying, do you got any people? Because I know people who follow Jesus work from a very different space. They work from a space of excellence and power and generosity because all that energy that goes into proving and striving and making sure that I get ahead, all that is released to give yourself fully to the work that God has given you in front of you. And you're released to no longer have to strive to prove but you are released to give yourself to make your mark. See, when, when people say, I wish I wouldn't have worked so hard at the end of their days, I don't think they're necessarily saying that they would have worked, they wish they would have worked less hours. I, I don't think they're even saying that their work wasn't important or that it didn't contribute to the world or that they would have like rather moved to Guam and lived in a commune or something like that. I don't think that's what they're saying in, in all of this. See, I think what they're saying is, I wish I would have related to it differently. I wish it wouldn't have become my identity driver or mean something about who I am or my value or my worth. I wish my identity wasn't so tied to what I did because it was that that caused me to work 80 hours a week unnecessarily. It was that that caused me to exhaust my health. It was that that caused me to neglect my family and, and thinking that was a good idea. It was that that made money my highest objective. It wasn't the work, it was how I was relating to it and what I was making it mean. Because see, when your identity is hidden in Christ, there is a foundation of you for your life that is so powerful and that is so profound that matter how, no matter how successful or rich or, pro or wealthy or no matter how much you blow it and are never known and work a nine to five that no one will ever remember, you know who you are and you know your worth. 
and nothing else can define you by anything less. And it is from that foundation that you can go and fully make your mark on your work as working unto God himself. If you know me, I don't oftentimes give you like, here's what you should do. But this week I I wanna give us a to-do for tomorrow. If you work tomorrow, maybe you go to work after this. But before you step foot in your workplace next, and if you work from home, before you log onto your computer or whatever it may be, I want you to pause and I want you to pray. And I want you to remind yourself before you set foot in your workplace, I am not here to prove anything. I'm not here to determine how good I am or am I better than someone else or can I be the best? And that you would just pause and remind yourself, God, would you just remind me I am a child of God and my value is already established. And because of that, I am gonna enter into these doors and I am free to use every ounce of my energy to express the powerful divine nature that is within me. And I get to give all of that away today because of who you are working out of me in this context. Because of that, I am free to give all of the power and the love and the generosity that God has on me that others might see God himself in that expression. Because I work for God and he is refining me into the person that he dreams for me to become. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have made us to make a mark. God, the the scriptures actually say that we are your masterpieces created to do good work. And God, I ask that you would remind us of that, that our identity cannot be found in anything else higher than you. And so God, we, we give ourselves fully to that. And Lord, I ask this week that as we go to our our jobs, as we go to our, our workplaces, as we log into business meetings, God, that you, God, would cause us to pause and remember there is nothing to prove. That my my work does not determine my value, that my paycheck does not determine my status in the kingdom of God. God, would you free up every ounce of energy to give away and that we might look at our our careers, our workplaces, our coworkers, our bosses as a powerful gymnasium to shape who we are and to fully express the power of you in us. And this morning, if you're here and and you have not yet connected to Jesus, maybe you're online joining us and, and you have not yet given your life over to him, Today is your day, today's your moment, because here's the thing, you're just gonna walk out of here more with more striving and more proving and trying to find your identity and all kinds of things, and it's gonna be exhausting. It's gonna be a waste of a life. You're gonna find yourself at the end of of your days going, "Why? why did I do that? And so this morning, if you haven't yet connected to Jesus and, and you would like to, this is your moment to connect to him. 
So if you're here or if you're online, you can just type in the chat box, I'm choosing to follow Jesus or click that button that's out there right now. But if you're here in the room and you would like to connect to Jesus in relationship for the first time, maybe the first time in a long time, would you just raise your hand? No one looking around. Awesome. I want you just to pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I know that I'm broken and I can only find my value in you. I confess that you are Lord and I believe that God, that you died and you rose again for my brokenness, that I might be made brand new so that I would never have to prove anything again. So I give my life to you and I choose to fully live in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Humanity Church Podcast. We hope that this was a meaningful experience and we look forward to connecting again next week for another conversation around what it looks like to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. Again, for more information about Humanity Church, you can visit us online at humanitychurch.com. And if you want to support the ongoing work here at Humanity Church, including this podcast, you can give online in about 10 seconds by texting the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977. Thanks and have an amazing week.